Let's keep that passage of God's Word open and let's bow our heads and pray now as we sit. Father, Your Word commands us to listen to Your words, and we pray that we would be those today that do that without hardness of heart. Open our ears and our hearts, we cry, because we ask it for Jesus' namesake, for His glory. Amen. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, which was first published in 1886. It tells the story of Dr. Jekyll, a morally respectable, upright London doctor who meddles with the darker side of science. Wanting to split the bad side of him from the good, Jekyll turns to a potion that he has created And when he drinks it, he's horrified that he turns into this this hideous monster, Mr. Edward Hyde. Luckily, he's able to switch from one to the other, from himself to his alter ego. But as the story continues, he becomes addicted to the portion and one day goes to bed as the respectable Dr. Jekyll, but wakes up as the hideous monster, Mr. Hyde. Terrified, he stays away from the drug for two months, and all seems to be fine, but it's not long before he succumbs again and takes another drink, and then takes on this hideous form forever, and the story ends in the tragedy of his own death. It's a disturbing book about the dark and hidden side to our hearts, yet camouflaged by a respectable front a respectable Victorian doctor living in central, respectable London, but deep down in his laboratory with the doors locked, a darker side lurks as he feeds his own evil character in the privacy of his own heart. The author was a Christian, and what he was writing about was really who we are deep down on the inside. And shortly after the book was published, he wrote this, I have called my character Mr. Hyde, but I could equally have called him Robert Louis Stevenson. The truth is, if we're honest, every single one of us here this morning wears a mask of outward respectability. and We hide the truth of who we really are. And it's about the evil inside our hearts that Jesus wants to teach us this morning, not in a way to crush us, but in a way to liberate us and to drive us into the arms of his saving grace. For this is the Jesus who has died for our sins at the cross of Calvary. Three points from the Lord Jesus. Here's the first. The hypocrisy of human religion. In chapter 7, verse 1, another official delegation of senior clergy arrive from Jerusalem to evaluate Jesus' ministry. But this seminary panel have already made up their minds. There are now clear grounds for the charge of blasphemy, incontrovertible evidence of heresy, and strong reasons to believe that he should be arrested and detained on the grounds of falsely purporting to be Messiah. This is actually the third conflict incident uh, with the religious establishment. We've already had a fight over the Sabbath and a fight over fasting. 
But now the issue is ritual washing, which interestingly is central to many religions, certainly to Judaism and Islam. You can't enter the mosque as a man on Friday for prayers unless you do your ablutions first. But this is an arrestable charge. They intend to indict him. Verse 2, they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, cleanliness was not next to godliness. It was godliness. They were so scrupulous about washing their hands and avoiding contact with the filthy, unclean Gentiles. So kosher Jews would do anything to avoid the contagion from the nations that weren't Jewish. In a book called Second Estrus, it was written that the Gentiles were like weeds planted by the devil. The Jews regarded them like lepers, like people who had COVID or AIDS or worse, Ebola. So the Jews engaged in an extreme form of social distancing. And it was as if the nation of Israel was in a, in a permanent lockdown to keep the filthy scum, the, the Gentile nations, out. A Jew would literally cross the road to avoid a Gentile when he saw him. And then when they came back from the marketplaces, they would literally decontaminate themselves from any possible pollution, rather like we might uh, take an isotope had we been near a nuclear reactor. Verse 4, the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders, and when they came back from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they cleansed themselves. So religious Jews engaged in an extensive ritual of washing before the meals. They would keep a little stone vessel, like a, a bowl at the table, and before the meal started, they would wash their hands. In actual fact, they would wash their hands before every course, and they would pray a prayer of cleansing as they asked God to cleanse them. The rabbis were deadly serious about it. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrements. They even had a prayer to be said during the washing, blessed be thou, O God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by the laws and commandments to wash our hands. One rabbi who failed to perform this ritual washing before the meal was excommunicated. And another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans um, and had his ration of water taken away and nearly died of thirst. So the killer question for the prosecution comes in verse 5. Have a look. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat bread with impure hands? Now, fear is a very powerful emotion. And when we're afraid of something, we will go to extremes to avoid it, won't we? So imagine a mother of three young children. And imagine she's living in a house next to a busy road, next to a deep lake. The command will be, do not run across that road and do not swim in the lake. But she's so fearful, rightly so, that she'll fence those central commands 
with a series of additional secondary regulations. She might say, and don't go outside the garden fence, when actually doing so could be safe. Or don't play outside unless I'm there. Or do not play outside at all. The fear of the lake, the fear of the roads, will drive her to a whole series of regulations and rules, a series of legislation to keep the children safe. And this is how Israel operated. They were so terrified of the possibility of disobeying God. They were so desperate to obey Scripture. They invented a whole canon of regulations. So on top of the Word of God, there were 613 additional rules in the Talmud, and then an extra 63 in the Mishnah. And they functioned these rules as a body of case law, interpreting the law of God, fencing you in to keep you away from even the possibility of disobedience. But the problem is this, that God gave the law in the Old Testament for obedience, yes, but for something else. The law of God given in the Old Testament was given to us to expose our sin and drive us to Christ for His mercy. The law in the Old Testament functioned rather like a giant cosmic x-ray to show just how fractured we are on the inside, or a giant MRI scan to show the full extent of the malignancy in the human heart. The law of God perfectly reflects the character of God. It demands perfection in every word and thought and deed, in every situation and relationship and dream and ambition. So rightly understood, the law of God in the hands of a sinner should function rather like a mirror in the hands of the hunchback of Notre Dame. See how disfigured and ugly you are, you wretch. Or like a copy of the penal code in the hands of an inmate on death row in Texas. See what you have disobeyed and see the death penalty, which now must be yours. But the danger with man-made rules and regulations, which we can do, is it closes our eyes and shuts our ears to the perfect law of God we cannot do. And so it fosters a toxic self-righteousness whereby we regard God's law like a checklist and we go through it one by one, tick, done, tick, tick. So at school, I hated the high jump. And we would go to the high jump, and the bar was just so high. And I vividly remember my friend Jared as he tried to get over the bar and flayed like a a whale and then landed like a beached whale as the whole thing collapsed around him. The PE teacher wasn't looking because of what we did next, which is that one of the other guys in the class uh, put the bar back lower and I cleared it with ease. That's what we do. More and more case law develops, but far from highlighting our plight, it brings the bar down lower. And so these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, look like they are desperate to obey, but because of their laws and regulations, it is actually just a clever device to avoid obedience. Look at verse 8. 
They neglect the commandments of God. Look at verse 9. They set aside the commandments of God. And look at verse 13. They invalidate the words of God. So the tail ends up wagging the dog. Rabbi Eleazar once said this, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the life to come. And in the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish traditions, and in the Talmud, it says this, it's extraordinary. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than contrary to scripture itself. Which is why Jesus goes for the jugular as now he mounts the case for the opposition, as he turns to them in verse 6 and says, rightly did Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah, prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines of men. The living Bible puts it like this, These people speak pettily about the Lord, but have no love for him at all. Their worship is a farce, for they claim God's commands, but they are obsessed with their own petty rules. So in our house, we love eating boiled eggs, and it's an English thing uh, that you eat them out of an egg cup. So just the other day for Easter, I found a shop a store, and I bought some uh, egg cups. And on Saturday, ate my egg out of an egg cup. But there's a great party trick, which is why it is worth investing in an egg cup. So you eat your egg early in the morning with toast. And everybody else is sleeping, and then they come down and the eggs are ready. But you turn the empty egg that you've eaten upside down and put it in the egg cup. Then you serve the toast and the coffee and the orange juice, and the kids come down bleary-eyed, and then they smash into their egg. But there's nothing there. It's a great trick. I highly recommend it. (laughs) But that's man-made religion. It looks so promising, I can't wait to delve in. But there's nothing there. It's just a shell. It's empty. It's a vacuum. Jesus says, you hypocrites. And that word hypocrites in the original Greek literally translates mask wearer or actor. Because in the ancient Greco-Roman world, you would put on a mask and a costume to play the part. So that word hypocrite is borrowed from the Hollywood sets or the Broadway stage. We're in the world of Tom Hanks and Angelina Jolie or Tom Cruise. They put on the costume and wear the makeup and learn the lines and they play the part. But it's done to impress the audience and win the Oscar. But it's not who they are. But God will award no Oscars for best performing actor here at church. He looks at the hearts. He is not fooled by outward show. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. There are myriads of professing Christians in every church whose union with Christ is outwards and formal. Some are joined to the church by baptism and church membership. Some go even further than this and are regular communicants and loud talkers about religion. 
but they all lack one thing that is needful, notwithstanding services and sermons and sacraments. They have no grace in their hearts, no faith, no inward working of the Holy Spirit. They are not one with Christ, and Christ is not in them. Their union is just nominal and not real. They have the reputation of being alive, but in the sight of God are dead. And in verse 10 to 13, Jesus shows us how this works in practice in the area of korban, a strange idea for us. The law says, verse 10, honor your father and your mother. That's what the law says. But then there came a man-made regulation called korban, where you could put your investments and your savings and say, it's in a restricted fund devoted to God. So when your parents need financial help or aid, Rather than obeying the commandment and doing the right thing before God and before them, these Pharisees would say, sorry, my money, it's korban, a restricted fund for the honoring of God. But they weren't honoring God at all, for the command said, give weight and honor your parents, the first commandment with a promise. We dismiss this as absurd, but actually, this is what we do, and it's what I do. The biblical command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, which is hard to do and impossible to do. So we shrink the commandment down into put your envelope in the collection plates. Not hard to do, easy to do, so I can tick the box marked up. The command is to love your neighbor as yourself, impossible to do. So I shrink it down to just take them a meal. The command is to be devoted to the Word of God in the whole of your life, in every area of your life, hard, impossible to do. So we shrink it down to listen to a sermon once a week. The command is to trust God with every moment every decision, in every area, we shrink it down to pray for three minutes a day. And actually, even in our organization, church life and subculture, every church has its own canon of rules and regulations. Many of them are good, but this is how it works. The Word of God is here, and so we introduce some kind of rule or or, um, tradition to help us with the Word of God. But the tradition and the rule grows, and it's not long before it's on the same level as the Word of God. And then it grows even further and further, and then the Word of God declines. And so the reality is that the man-made thing we introduce to assist us with the Word actually before long displaces and replaces the words of God. One of the things the elders and deacons are doing at the moment here at Lydes is taking a long, hard look at the life of our church as we open the hood and look at the inside, if you like, at the engine. And a number of them have already got to work at doing that here at Lydes. And we're asking the question, which is a 
important question, yet a disturbing question. Where do we see legalism, if you like, Pharisaism, here in the life of our church? Had you gone to my former church, there would be a whole series of other rules and regulations there. So it's not a Lydie's thing, it's a church thing wherever we are. But a number of the elders have already emailed in to me to tell me where they think there's a problem. Let me just share this with you. Not my observations, because I think this is a great church, but your elders' observations, and let me just tell you, senior, long-standing elders. One of them said this. I, this elder, was talking with another long-standing elder a while ago at what are the sacred cows at Lydie's. This other long-standing senior elder said, I think we give far too much weight to the decisions that we have made in the past. And the sacred cow is if we've decided on it in the past, it can never be changed. Three very senior long-standing elders here have been in touch with me to raise their concern about how women are related to in the life of our church and how involved they are allowed to be in the life of this church. They, like me, are very clear. A woman could never be senior pastor or preach or lead the service or be an elder. That is a theological inflexibility from the scriptures. They wonder if there is a culture of keeping women to the side. And they, like me, believe that needs to be challenged and changed. One senior long-standing elder mentioned an unspoken culture here of not being able to be honest about our struggles and shortcomings, a fear of saying, I am struggling with this. One elder, long-standing, said it would be a hard church for a visitor with long hair and tattoos to attend or to feel at home here. He fears we would look down on him. In just the same way, he said that we might look down on the woman who's had an abortion, the gay who comes, or the unmarried woman who comes. We're fine at welcoming the nuclear family with four children married, but we would struggle to welcome the outsider who's unmarried. Another elder questioned, uh, little, little traditions, only the elders can serve communion. Little traditions, the elders and the deacons and the ushers must wear suits. Little traditions, there has to be an anthem from the choir every Sunday. Little traditions, like ministries run without feedback, growth groups, children's ministries run in the way that they've always been run, without feedback or any possibility of change. So I'm tasking your elders, we'll call it Operation Challenge Legalism, and they're on it. These elders are on it, they're looking at this. And we've got to ask the why question of everything we do. Because when we ask the why question of why do we do that, it may well be there are very good reasons why we do that, and so we're not allowed to change it. But if when we ask the why question, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, and when we ask the why question, we see it impedes mission or the hearing of God's word, it has to change, or we're not an evangelical church.
The thing about me, though, is I hate change. I hate disruption. I don't know about you. But why is this? And the answer is religion, outward religion. It, it functions like a comfort blanket for me. Um, it's like a defensive shield. And therefore, the problem is not really religion and traditions, but actually the heart. And that's why it's to the heart that Jesus now turns. From the hypocrisy of outward religion, second, to the evil of my heart. I love crime dramas like CSI or Law and Order or Drummer Quincy. But actually, the formula was always the same. There would be a murder, and then the investigator would get to work. But the best part was always the autopsy scene. There was always an autopsy, and Quincy was always in a hurry to get the autopsy done. Well, verse 15 functions, if you like, like an autopsy of the human heart. He calls the multitude, and he says to them, hear me, everyone, understand this. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things that come out of him are the things that defile a man. Jesus is dealing now with religious externalism because the problem with human religion is it's all about the outside. But Jesus is about the inside. And one commentator, John Barclay, puts it like this, although it may not seem like this to us, when first spoken, this was well nigh the most revolutionary text in the New Testament. Because what Jesus is doing is abolishing human religion. Because God is not interested by external rituals. It doesn't press his buttons. God is passionately concerned with what's going on on the inside of my heart. Because the axis of evil, as George W. Bush called it, is not out there. It's in here. As Jesus now comes, verse 21, to a charge sheet with 12 counts. Count 1, verse 12, 21, adulteries. That's in my heart. Count two, fornications. Inside your heart, count three, murders. Count four, thefts. Count five, covetousness. In your heart, count six, wickedness. Count seven, deceit. In my heart. Count eight, lewdness. Count nine, an evil eye. Count ten, blasphemy. Count eleven, pride. Count twelve, Foolishness, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? For all these evils come from inside and they defile a man. Each of these sins have one thing in common. It's all about me and myself. Adulteries, I want your wife. Murder, I want my way. Theft, I want your stuff, me. As somebody once said, sin is a small three-lettered words, but I stands tall in the middle, proud. And some years ago, in the 1950s, I think, there was a, a competition or a, a question that was asked in the Times newspaper of London. What is wrong with the world? And various correspondents wrote in, well, it's the economy and it's education. It's the rise of Islam or whatever it might be. 
But G.K. Chesterton, the well-known writer, wrote in, and he said this, what is wrong with the world, dear sir? I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Spurgeon puts it like this, the source from which these rivers of pollution proceed is the natural heart of man. Sin is not a splash of mud on man's exterior, but is filth generated from inside. And that word defile is a Greek word borrowed from the law code of the book of Leviticus, where the question is, how can a holy God live with a sinful people And the word defile really means to be under his condemnation, not fit for his presence, not able to enter his kingdom, if you like, banished, and therefore under his judicial sentence, heading, if you like, for the eternal agonies of hell. We are defiled by nature, deep down on the inside, and there is nothing I can do about it. The hypocrisy of human religion, the evil of the human heart, But there's one last thing to see briefly, which is the power of Jesus' rescue. Towards the end of the novel, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll tries to solve it. He realizes he keeps turning into this monster and there's nothing he can do. So he tries to find some chemical portion or something that can turn him back and change his heart. I won't ruin the book, but it doesn't end well. Well, by the end, he's dead. (laughs) And we're tempted to despair. Human religion can't make us right before God's, but Jesus Christ can. And Mark is this extraordinary editor who now places verse 23 right next to the section on the unclean hearts. Because we move from an unclean heart, verse 23, to an unclean region, and now to an unclean person, and let's see what Jesus does with her. He arose, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house, and a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she fell at his feet. The geography student will notice where we are, 50 miles up on the map to the north in in the unclean Gentile territory, the precise kind of area where a Jew would never go. And he enters into a Gentile house, something a Jew would never even dream of doing. But in Isaiah 9, the prophet said that the sign that the kingdom was dawning would be that Messiah would go to the Gentile territory, it's the great Christmas text, the land by the sea, the people in darkness. So where are we on the map? But by the sea, and where are we? But in the land of the people in darkness, in the heart of the Decapolis, and what is Jesus about to do but save a Greek Syrophoenician woman? She's double disqualified from the kingdom of God. She's a Greek Gentile, and in terms of the temple infrastructure, She's a woman. Only Jewish men could go in. The women were kept out here, and the Gentiles kept out here. She's a, she's a Gentile uh, woman, but it's worse because her daughter has an unclean spirit. So here is the filth of the nations. Here is a desperate woman banished from the kingdom of God. What's Messiah going to do about that now? Is he going to turn to her and say, go to hell? No. She walks to him with audacious faith, verse 26. She falls at his feet and asks 
cast out the demon from my daughter. Jesus' answer is intriguing. Let the children first be filled. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the, to the dogs. But the point is, in Israel, she is a dog. She stands as a filthy dog. And actually, we use that word today in a derogatory way. Bitch. The Jews would have looked at her and thought, filthy bitch. So what does Jesus do with this filthy bitch dog? He welcomes her into the kingdom. He saves her daughter from the demons. He invites her into the kingdom of God. He opens his arms to her at the cross. He freely gives her his righteousness and salvation and grace. And that's the pattern of the kingdom, isn't it? She doesn't have to become religious or observe any of our traditions. The arms of grace are open in just the same way that they would be this morning if we had an abortionist here or an LGBTQI activist here or a gang leader from a pedophile ring here or an ISIS terrorist here, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, his pardon receives. Let me end with this. In a wedding, vows are exchanged and then the rings. But in the old days, the reason the rings were exchanged was that the groom was giving something to the bride. Actually, the bride didn't give the groom a ring. The groom gave his ring. Not any ring, but his signet ring. And the signet ring was a statement of his earthly possessions, his estates. And so as he took off the ring at the wedding service and gave it to his wife-to-be, after the vows, effectively what he was doing was saying, all that I have, I give to you. And this is what happens when we come to Christ. All that we have, we give to him, our filth, our wretchedness and shame. And then Jesus says, all that I have, I give to you. My victorious sacrificial death and perfect righteousness imputed to you. And so the answer to religion is not stop being religious. The medicine and the cure is the gospel of grace. Because as grace grips us, we are freed and liberated from a toxic religion. Like this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the great good news of Jesus' perfect life, his saving death and mighty resurrection. Our Father, our prayer is that we would be those with hearts that are changed and minds that are renewed. Help us to serve you today and this coming week, full of your spirit, with grace and joy. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.